Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, jumping right into it today. Today I'm speaking with Eric Schmidt. Eric is a technologist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He joined Google in 2001 and served as its CEO and chairman from 2001 to 2011 and as executive chairman and technical advisor thereafter. In 2017, he co-founded Schmidt Futures, a philanthropic initiative that bets early on exceptional people who are helping to make the world better. He is the host of Reimagine with Eric Schmidt, his own podcast, and most recently he is the co-author of a new book, The Age of AI and Our Human Future. And that is the topic of today's conversation. We cover how AI is affecting the foundations of our knowledge and how it raises questions of existential risk. So we talk about the good and the bad of AI, both narrow AI and ultimately AGI, artificial general intelligence. We discuss breakthroughs in pharmaceuticals and other good things, but we also talk about cyber war and autonomous weapons and how our thinking about containing the risk here by analogy to the proliferation of nuclear weapons probably needs to be revised. Anyway, an important conversation, which I hope you find useful. And I bring you Eric Schmidt. I am here with Eric Schmidt. Eric, thanks for joining me. Glad to be with you. So um, we have, uh, I think we have a hard out at an hour here. So uh, amazingly, that's a short podcast for me. So I'm going to be, <laughs> there's going to be a spirit of urgency hanging over the place. And we will be um, efficient in covering the fascinating book that you have written with Henry Kissinger and Daniel Huttenlocker. That's right. And Dr. Kissinger, of course, is the former Secretary of State. And Dan Huttenlocker is now the Dean of Artificial Intelligence and Computer Science at the Schwartzman Center at MIT. He's a proper computer scientist. Yeah, and that, and that book is The Age of AI and Our Human Future, where you cover you know, most of what I have said about AI thus far and every case where I have worried about our possible AI future has been focused on the topic of AGI, artificial general intelligence, which you discuss briefly in the book, but it's not your main focus. So I thought maybe we could save that for the end, because I would love to get your take on AGI. But there are far more near-term concerns here and considerations that, that we could cover. And uh, you are quite well-placed to cover them, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, you ran Google for, what was it, 10 years? That's correct. Um, what was your background before that? How did you come to be the CEO of Google? Well, I'm a computer scientist. I have a PhD in the area, and I worked for 45 years in tech in one way or the other, a whole bunch of companies. Uh, Larry and Sergey brought me in as the early CEO of the company, and we built it together. After a decade, I became chairman, Larry became CEO, and then he replaced himself with Sundar, who's now doing a phenomenal job at Google. Mm. So I'd say collectively, this group, of which I'm a member, built one of the great companies. I'm really proud of that. Yeah. And Obviously, Google is quite involved in developing AI. I just saw just the other day that there's a new, I think it's a 540 billion parameter language model that is uh, beating the average human at something like 150 cognitive tests now. And it seems like 
the, the, the light is at the end of the tunnel there. I mean, it's just going to be a, a larger model that's going to beat every human at those same tasks. But uh, before we get into some of the details here, I just wanted to organize our general approach to this. There are three questions that Kant asked in his Critique of Pure Reason, I think it was, uh, which seem unusually relevant to the development of AI. The first is, what can we know? The second is, what should we do? And the third is, what is it reasonable to hope for? And I think those are really do capture almost every aspect of concern here, because as you point out in the book, AI really promises to, and it has already begun to shift the foundations of human knowledge, right? So the question of what we can know and how we can know it is enormously salient now, and, and, and maybe we can talk about some of those examples. But obviously, this question of what, what should we do and, and what can we reasonably hope for captures the risks we're running in developing these systems. And we're running these risks well short of producing anything like artificial general intelligence. And it's interesting that we're, we're, we're on a path now where we're really not free to decline to produce this technology. I mean, there, to my eye, there's really no break to pull. I mean, we're, we're in a kind of AI arms race now. And the question is how to put that race for more intelligence on a footing that is, is not running cataclysmic risk for us. So, um, you know, before we jump into the details, I guess I'd like to get your general thoughts on how you view the stakes here and where you view the, the, the field to be at the moment. Well, of course, we wrote the book, Age of AI, precisely to help answer the questions you're describing, which are perfectly cast. And what's happened in the book, which is written roughly a year ago and then published, we described a number of examples to illustrate the point. One is the development of new moves in the game of Go, which is 2,500 years, which were discovered by a computer, which humans had never discovered. It's hard to imagine that humans wouldn't have discovered these strategies, but they didn't. And that calls the question of, are there things which AI can learn that humans cannot master? That's a question. The second example that we use is the development of a new drug called Halicin, which is a broad-spectrum antibiotic, which could not be done by humans, but a set of neuroscientists, biologists, and computer scientists put together a set of programs that ultimately searched through 100 million different compounds and came up with candidates that were then subsequently tested advancing drugs at an enormous rate. That's another category of success in AI. And then the third is what you've already mentioned, which is large language models. And we profile in the book GPT-3, which is the, the predecessor of the one you described. Mm. And it's eerie. On the back cover of our book, we say to the GPT-3 computer, are you capable of human reasoning? And it answers, no, I am not. You may wonder why I give you that answer. And the answer is that you are a human reasoning machine, whereas I am a language model that's not been taught how to do that. Now, is that awareness or is that clever mimicry? We don't know. But each of these three examples show the potential to answer Kant's questions. What can we know? What will happen? What can we do about it? Since then, this past few weeks, We've seen the announcement that you mentioned of this enormous large language model, which can beat humans on many things. 
And we've also seen something called DAL-E, which is a text-to-art program. You describe roughly what you want, and it can generate art for you. Now, these are the beginnings of the impact of artificial intelligence on us as humans. So Dr. Kissinger, Dan, and myself, when we looked at those, we thought, what happens to society when you have these kinds of intelligence? Now, they're not human intelligence. They're different kinds of intelligence in everyday life. And we talk about all the positives, of which there are incredible positives. Better materials, better drugs, more efficient systems, better understanding, better monitoring of the earth, additional solutions for climate change. There's a long, long list, which I can go through. Very, very exciting. And indeed, in my personal philanthropy, we are working really hard to fund AI-enabled science discoveries. We recently announced a grant or a structure with a guy named James Manyika, who's a friend of mine, to, of $125 million to actually go and fund research on the really hard problems in AI, the ones that, that you're mentioning and others, and also the economic impacts and so forth. So I think people don't really know. The real question is, what happens when these systems become more commonplace? Dr. Kissinger says, if you look at history, when a system that is not understandable is imposed on people, they do one of two things. They either invent it as a religion or they fight it with guns. So my concern, and I'll say it very directly, is we're playing with the information space of humans. We're experimenting at scale without a set of principles as to what we want to do. Do we care more about freedom? Do we care more about efficiency? Do we care more about education and so forth? And Dr. Kissinger would say, the problem is that this, these decisions are being made by technical people who are ignorant of the philosophical questions that you so ably asked. And I agree with him, speaking mm -hmm. as an example of that. So we recommend, and indeed I'm trying to now fund, that people begin in a multidisciplinary way to discuss the implications of this. What happens to national security? What happens to military intelligence? What happens to social media? What happens to your children when your child's best friend is a computer? And for the audience who, who might be think, still thinking about the killer robot, we're not building killer robots, and I hope we never do. This is really about information systems that are human-like, that are learning, they're dynamic, and they're emergent, and they're imprecise, being used and imposed on humans around the world. Mm. That process is unstoppable. It's simply too many people working on it, too many ways in which people are going to manipulate it, including for hostile reasons, too many businesses being built, and too much success for some of the early work. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I, if I can just emphasize that point, the unstoppability is pretty interesting because it's just anchored to this basic fact that intelligence is almost by definition the most valuable thing on earth, right? And, exactly. and, if, and if we can get more of it, we're going to. And we clearly can. And all of these narrow intelligences we've built thus far, you know, all that are, that are effective that come to market that we pour resources into are superhuman, more or less right out of the gate, right? I mean, it's just, it's not a question of, I mean, human level intelligence is a bit of a mirage because the moment we get something that's general, it's going to be superhuman. And so we can leave the, the generality aside. All of these piecemeal intelligences 
are superhuman. And I mean, you, the example you give of the new uh, antibiotic, Hallison, I mean, it, it's fascinating because it's not just a matter of doing human work faster. If I understand what happened in that case, this is an AI detecting patterns and relationships in molecules already known to be you know, safe and, and efficacious as antibiotics, and detecting new properties that human beings very likely would never have conceived of and may, in fact, be opaque to the, the people who built the AI and may re- remain opaque. I mean, one of, the, one of the issues you just raised is the issue of transparency. Many of these systems are built in such a way as to be black boxes, and we don't know how the AI is doing what it's doing in any specific way. It is just training against data and against its own performance mm-hmm. so as to produce a, a better and better result, which qualifies as intelligent and, and even superhumanly so. And yet it may remain a black box. Maybe we can just close the loop on that specific problem here. Are you? concerned that transparency is a necessity when decision-making is important? I mean, just imagine the case where we have a something like an AI oracle that we are convinced makes better decisions than, than any person or even any group of people, but we don't actually know the details of how it's making those decisions, right? So, so this is, I mean, you can just multiply examples as you like, but just you know, questions of, you know, who should get out of prison, you know, the, mm-hmm. the likelihood of recidivism in the case of any person, or, you know, who's likely to be, you know, more violent, you know, at the level of conviction, right? Like, what, what should the prison sentence be? I mean, it, it's very easy to see that if we're shunting that to a black box, people are going to get fairly alarmed that in any differences in outcome that are not transparent. Perhaps you have, have other examples of concern, but what, do you think transparency is something that, I mean, one, one question is, is it technically feasible to render black boxes transparent when it matters? And two, is transparency as important as we intuitively may think it is? Well, I wonder how important transparency is for the simple fact that we have teenagers among our midst, and the teenagers cannot explain themselves mm-hmm. at all. And yet we tolerate their behavior with some restrictions because they're not full adults. So, but we wouldn't let a teenager uh, fly an airplane or operate on a patient. So I think a pretty simple model is that at the moment, these systems cannot explain how they came to their decision. There are many people working on the explainability problem. Until then, I think it's going to be really important that these systems not be used in what I'm going to call life safety situations. And this creates all sorts of problems. For example, in automated war, automated conflict, cyber war, those sorts of things where the speed of decision making is faster than what humans can, what happens if it makes a mistake? And so, again, we're at the beginning of this process. And most people, including myself, believe that the explainability problem and the bias problems will get resolved because there's just too Mm -hmm. much money, too many people working on it, maybe at some cost, but we'll get there. That's historically how these things work. You start off with stuff that works well enough, but it shows a hint of the future and then it gets industrialized. I'm actually much more focused on what's it like to be human when you have these specialized systems floating around. My favorite example here is Facebook, where they change their feed to amp it using AI. 
And the AI that they built was around engagement. And we know from a great deal of social science that outrage creates more engagement. And so therefore, there's more outrage on your feed. Now, that was a clearly deliberate decision on part of Facebook. Presumably thought it was a good product idea, but it also maximized their revenue. That's a pretty big social experiment given the number of users that they have, which yeah. is not done with an understanding, in my view, of the impact of political polarization. Now, you sit there and you go, okay, well, he doesn't work at Facebook. He doesn't really understand. But many, many people have commented on this problem. This is an image of what happens in a world where the, all of the information around you can be boosted or manipulated by AI to sell to you, to anchor you, to change your opinion, and so forth. So we're going to face some interesting questions in the information space, the television and movies and things you see online and so forth. Do there need to be restrictions on how AI uses the information it has about you to pitch to you, to market to you, to entertain you? These are questions. We don't have answers. But it makes perfect sense that in the industrialization of these tools, the tools that I'm describing, which were invented in places like Google and Facebook, will become available to everyone and every government. So another example is a simple one, which is the kid is a two-year-old and gets a toy, and the toy gets upgraded every year, and the kid gets smarter. The toy is now the kid is now 12, and there's the 10 years from now, there's a great toy. And this toy is smart enough in non-human terms to be able to watch television and decide if the kid likes the show. So the toy is watching the television and the kid, the, the, the toy says to the kid, I don't like this show, knowing that the kid's not going to like it. And the kid goes, I agree with you. Now, is that okay? Probably. Well, what happens if that same system that's also learning Learn something that's not true. And it goes, Psh, you know, kid, I have a secret. And the kid goes, tell me, tell me, tell me. And the secret is something which is prejudicial or false or bad or something like that. We don't know how to describe, especially for young people, the impact of these systems on their cognitive development. Now, we have a long history in America of having school boards and textbooks which are approved at the state level. Are the states going to monitor this? And you sit there and you say, well, no parent would allow that. But let's say that the normal behavior of this toy is smart enough, understands the kid well enough to know the kid's not good at multiplication. So the kid's bored and then says, the, kid, the toy says, I think we should play a game. Kid goes, great. And of course, it's a game which strengthens his or her multiplication capability. So on the one hand, you want these systems to make people smarter make them develop, make them more serious adults, make the adults more productive. Another example would be my physics friends. They just want a system to read all the physics books every night and make suggestions mm -hmm. to them. Well, the physicists are adults who can deal with this. But what about kids? So you're going to end up in a situation, at least with kids and with elderly who are isolated, where these tools are going to have an out-of-proportion impact on society as they perceive it. We've never run that experiment. Dynamic, emergent, and not precise. Mm. I'm not worried about airplanes being flown by AI because they're not going to be reliable enough to do it for a while. Now, we should also say for the listeners here that we're talking about what a term which is generally known as narrow AI. 
It's very specific, and we're using specific examples, drug discovery, education, entertainment. But the, the eventual state of AI is called general intelligence, where you get human kind of re reasoning. In the book, what we describe that as the point where the computer can set its own objective. And today, the good news is the computer can't choose its objective. At some point, that will not be true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get to AGI uh, at the end of this hour. But um, I think we should talk about the good and the bad in that order and maybe just spend a few minutes on the good because the good is all too obvious. Again, an intelligence is the most valuable thing on earth. It's the thing that gives us every other thing we want, and, and it's the thing that safeguards everything we have. And if there are problems we can't solve, well, then we can't solve them. But if there are problems that can be solved, the, the way we will solve them is through greater uh, uses of our intelligence. And if you know, insofar as we can leverage artificial intelligence to solve those problems, we will do that more or less regardless of the attendant risks. And that's the problem because the attendant risks are increasingly obvious and, and it seems not at all trivial. And we've already proven we're capable of implementing massive technological change without really thinking about the consequences mm -hmm. at all. I mean, you, you, you cite the, mm -hmm. the massive psychological experiment we've performed on all of humanity with no one really consenting. Uh, that is social media, and it's you know the the effects are ambiguous at best. I mean, there's some obviously bad effects, and it, it's not even straightforward to say that democracy or even civilization can survive contact with social media. I mean, yeah, I mean that remains to be seen, given how divisive some of its effects are. I, and I consider social media to be far less alarming than the prospect of having an ongoing nuclear doctrine anchored to a, a proliferating regime of uh, cyber espionage, cyber terrorism, cyber war, all of which uh, will be improved massively by layering AI onto all of that. So before we jump into the bad, which is you know really capturing my attention, is there anything you, specifically you want to say about the good here? I mean, if this goes well, what are you hoping for? What are you expecting? Well, there are so many positive examples that we honestly just don't have time to make a list. I'll give you a few. In physics and math, the physicists and math have, mathematicians have worked out the formulas for how the world works, at least at the scientific level. But many of their calculations are not computable by modern computers. They're just too complicated. Um, an example is how do clouds actually work is a function of something called the Navier-Stokes equations which for a normal-sized cloud would take 100 million years for a computer to figure out. But using an AI system, and there's a group at Caltech doing this, they can come up with a simulation of the things that they care about. In other words, the AI provides enough accuracy in order to solve the more general climate modeling problem. If you look at quantum chemistry, which is sort of how, does, how do chemical bonds work together, not computable by modern methods. However, AI can provide enough of a simulation that we can figure out how these molecules bind, which is the Hallison example. In drug discovery, we know enough about biology 
that we can basically predict that if you do these compounds with you know this antibody, we can make it stronger, we can make it weaker, and so forth in the computer, and then you go reproduce it in the lab. There's example after example where AI is being used from existing data to simulate a non-computable function in science. And you say, what's he talking about? I'm talking about the fact that the scientists have been stuck for decades because they know what they want to do, but they couldn't get through this barrier. That unleashes new materials, new drugs, new forms of steel, new forms of concrete, and so forth and so on. It also helps us with climate change, for example, because climate change is really about energy and CO2 emission and so forth. These new surfaces, discoveries, and so forth will make a material difference. And I'm talking about really significant numbers. So that's an example. Another example is what's happening with these large language models that you mentioned earlier, that people are figuring out a way to put a conversational system in front of it so that you can talk to it. And the conversational system has enough state that it can remember what it's talking about. It's not like a question, answer, question, answer, and it doesn't remember. It actually remembers the context of, oh, we're talking about the Oscars, and we're talking about what happened at the Oscars, and what do I think? And then it sort of goes, and it gives you a a thoughtful answer as to what happened and what is possible. In my case, I was playing with one of them a few months ago, and this one, I asked the question, what is the device that's in 2001 A Space Odyssey that I'm using today? There's something from 1969 that I'm using today that was foreshadowed in the movie. And it comes right back and says, the iPad. Now, that's a question Hmm. that Google won't answer if you ask it the way I did. So I believe that the biggest positive impact will be that you'll have a system that you can verbally or by writing ask it questions, and it will make you incredibly smarter. Right, that it'll give you the nuance and the understanding and the context. And you can ask it another question and you can refine your question. Now, if you think about it in the work you do or that I do or that a scientist does or a politician or an artist, this is, in, is, is enormously transformative. So example after example, these systems are going to build scientific breakthroughs, scalable breakthroughs. Another example was that a group of, at DeepMind figured out the folding structure of proteins. And proteins are the way in which biology works. And the way they fold determines their effectiveness, what they actually do. And it was thought to be not really computable. And using these techniques in a very complicated way with a whole bunch of protein scientists, they managed to do it. And their their result was replicated in a different mechanism with different AI from something called the Baker Lab in University of Washington. The two together have given us a map of how proteins work which in my view is worthy of a Nobel Prize. That's how big a discovery that is. Mm. All of a sudden, we are unlocking the way biology works and it affects us directly. But mm. those are some, some positive examples. I think the negative examples... Well, let's wait for that because I'm, I'm chock full of negative examples. Okay. But um, I'm interested in how even the positive can disclose a a surprisingly negative possibility, or at least you know, it becomes negative if we haven't planned for it ethically, politically, economically. And so, just Im- so you imagine the success, you imagine that more and more. So, what, what you've just pictured was a future of machine and human cooperation, mm-hmm. right? And and facilitation, where people just get smarter by being able to to have access to these tools. 
uh, or they get effectively smarter. But you can imagine just in the limit, more and more getting seeded to AI because AI is just better at doing these things. Mm -hmm. It's better at proving theorems. It's better at designing software. It's better, it's better, it's better. And all of a sudden, the need for human developers at all or human mathematicians at all, or you just you make the list as long as you want. It seems like some of the the highest you know status jobs cognitively might be uh, among the first to fall, which is to say I, I I I certainly expect at this point to have an AI radiologist, uh, certainly before I have an AI plumber. And there's a lot more above and beyond the radiology side of that comparison that I think is going to fall before you know, the basic manual tasks fall to robots. So, and this is, a, this is a picture of real success, right? Because it, in the end, all we're going to care about is performance. We're not going to care about keeping a, a monkey in the loop just for reasons of sentimentality. You know, if you're telling me that my car can drive a thousand times better than I can, which is to say that, you know, it's going to reduce my risk of getting in a fatal accident, you know, killing myself or killing someone else by a factor of a thousand if I just flip on autopilot, well, then not only am I going to flip it on, I'm going to consider anyone who declines to do that to be negligent to the point of criminality. And that's never going to change. It's, you know, everything is going to be in the position of a current chess master who knows that the best player on earth is never going to be a person ever again, right? Because so, a, so because of alpha zero. So, so yeah, I take that wherever you want. I disagree a little bit, and I'll tell you why. I think you're correct in about 30 years, but I don't think that right. argument is true in the short term. And yeah, no, I, I was not, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting any time frame there. I'm just saying ultimately... If so, we continue to make progress, something like this seems bound to happen. Yes, but what, what I want to say is I defy you to argue with me that making people smarter is a bad thing. Okay. Right. So let's start with the premise of the human assistant, that is the, the thing that you're using, will make humans smarter. It'll make it deeper better analysis, better choices. But at least the current technology cannot replace the essentially the free will of, of humans. They sort of wake up in the morning, you have a new idea, you decide something, you say, oh, that's a bad idea, so forth and so on. We don't know how to do that yet. And I, and I have some speculation on how that will happen. But in the next decade, we're going to not be solving that problem. We're going to be solving a different problem which is how do we get the existing people doing existing jobs to do them more efficiently, that is smarter, better, faster. One of the, when we looked at the funding for this AI program that I've since announced, the funding, 125 million, a fair chunk of it is going to really hard computer science problems. Some of them include, we don't really understand how to explain what they're doing. As I mentioned, they're also brittle. When they mm. fail, they can fail catastrophically. Like, why did it fail? And no one can explain. Um, there are hardening, there are resistance to attack problems. There are a number of problems of this kind. These are hard computer science problems, which I think we will get through. They use a lot of power, the algorithms are expensive, that sort of thing. But we have also focusing around the impact on jobs and employment and economics. We're also 
focusing on national security, and we're focusing on the question that you're asking, which is, what's our identity? What does it mean to be human? Before general intelligence comes, we have to deal with the fact that these systems are not capable of choosing their own outcome, but they can be applied to you as a citizen by somebody else against your own satisfaction. So the negatives before AGI are all of the form misinformation, misleading information, creating dangerous tools and, for example, dangerous viruses for the same reason that we built a a fantastic new antibiotic drug, it looks like. You could also imagine a similar evil team of producing Mm. an incredible number of bad viruses, you know, things that would hurt people. And you could imagine in that scenario, they might be clever enough to be able to hurt a particular race or a particular sex or something like that. Uh, which would be totally evil and obviously a very bad thing. We don't have a way of discussing that today. So when I look at the positives and negatives right now, I think the positives, as with many technologies, really overwhelm the negatives, but the negatives need to be looked at. And we need to have the conversation right now about, let's use social media, which is an easy whipping boy here. I would like, uh, so I'm clear what my political position is, I'm a very strong proponent of freedom of speech for humans. I am not in favor of freedom of speech for computers, robots, bots, so forth and so on. Mm. I want an option with social media which says, I only want to see things that a human has actually communicated from themselves. I want to know that it wasn't snuck in by some Russian agent. I want proof of providence, and I want to know there's a human. And if it's a real human who's in fact you know, an idiot or crazy or whatever, I want to be able to hear their voice and I want to be able to decide I don't agree with it. What's happening instead is these systems are being boosted. They're being pitched. They're being sold by AI. And I think that's got to be limited in some way. I'm in favor hmm. of free speech, but I don't, want, I don't want only some people to have megaphones. And if you talk to politicians and you look at the political structure in the country, this is an, a completely unintended effect of getting everyone wired. Now, is it a human or is it a computer? Is it a Russian, a Russian compromat plane, or is it an American? Those things need to get resolved. You cannot run a democracy without some level of trust. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take that piece here. And obviously, it extends beyond the problem of AI's involvement in it, but the, the, the misinformation problem is enormous. What are your thoughts about it? Because I'm just imagining we've been spared thus far the worst possible case of this, which is just imagine uh, in under conditions of where we had something like perfect deep fakes, right? That were truly difficult to tell apart from real video. What would the controversy around the 2020 election have looked like, or the you know, war in Ukraine and our dealings with Putin at, at this moment, right? Like, just imagine, you know, a perfect deep fake of Putin declaring a nuclear first strike on the U.S. or whatever. I mean, you just, you know, just imagine essentially a, a writer's room from hell where you have smart, creative people spending their waking hours figuring out how to produce media that is shattering to every open society and conducive to provoking international conflict. That is clearly coming in some form. Uh, I guess 
My first question is, are, are you hopeful that the moment that arrives, we will have the same level of technology that can spot deep fakes? Or is there going to be a, um, a lag there of months, years that are going to be difficult to, to navigate? We don't know. There are people working really hard on generating defects, and there are people working really hard on detecting defects. And one of the general problems with misinformation is we don't have enough training data. The, the term here is, in order to get an AI system to know something, you have to give it enough examples of good, bad, good, bad, and eventually it could say, oh, here's something new, and I know if it's good or bad. And one of the core problems in misinformation is we don't have enough agreement on what is misinformation or what have you. Mm. And the thought experiment I would offer is President Putin in Russia has already shut down the internet and free speech and controls the media and so forth. So let's imagine that he was further evil than he already is. And he had a team that built a system online in Russia that detected what people are essentially looking at online and so forth. And based on that training data, which it would have a lot, it could adapt its propaganda to further make sure that there's no independent thought about what's going on in Ukraine. So it makes perfect sense if you're willing to shut down free speech and you're a dictator to take it to its extreme and use that to essentially control the thinking of the masses. That would be the dictator's playbook, if you will. So this is real. And one of the concerns that I have is that before AGI, in the next decade or so, these systems are going to get very, very good at what they do. They're going to get very industrialized. And yet, we don't have a way of limiting their use. So for example, um, a good example is the face recognition stuff that's being done in China. There's no rule that it be used for one function and not the other. When I was last in China, I was visiting one of the face recognition companies, and they gave me this incredible demo of what they'd done, which was very impressive. But they didn't take me to the building next door, which I'm sure was busy mm -hmm. doing this to oppress the Uyghurs. So what you don't know is, you, you know, you honestly don't know, but I'm sure that that's what they were doing. So as a matter of technology, because these things are dual use, and this is true of all of AI, we have to really call out, as you are doing now, the potential negative use, and then come up with some pragmatic restriction. So for example, I'm very concerned that a large database of biology will be invented in China and the US, that a whole bunch of new algorithms will be, ben be benefited to help us build drugs, so forth and so on, and then an evil person will take that database and drugs and use it to produce negative drugs, things that hurt humans, and, and so forth and so on. How do we prevent that? Well, one is with military-level security around this, which is, I think, pretty obvious. But maybe we could also design the system to make it less flexible, less scalable, and so forth and so on. So we've got to think this through now before we implement these systems at scale. Mm. I, I think we should talk now about AGI if, if you're comfortable. Actually, before we jump in there, I just want to, this is of a piece with what you just landed on, the, the possibility of regulation and cooperation internationally. And um, one most alarming sections in your book was where you guys covered the history of nuclear arms control and proliferation and you know it, all of our our misadventures there but also but our successfully keeping ourselves from destroying one another for you know, low now these 70 some odd years and 
What is scary about that is how much of a disanalogy there is between AI and nuclear weapons. And I wonder if we could run through that a bit because it's just, you, you know, there, I'm sure there are lessons to learn from our living under the shadow of, of Armageddon, but it's just the technologies are so different. They're engaged so differently. Mm-hmm. They spread so differently. It's just there's not as much to learn as we might hope there. And therefore, the the prospect of actually in, enforcing some kind of treaty where you you know we and the Chinese agree not to do X, Y, and Z, the, all of that seems much more fraught, right? So maybe we mm-hmm. can cycle on that for a second. Well, thank you for mentioning that. In that chapter, what we describe the n- nuclear scenario, and we show how much harder the softer one is. I'll give you some examples. Dr. Kissinger, who largely is one of the inventors of this whole doctrine when he was much younger, tells the story of how he would do the negotiations with the Soviets. And it would always start with a conversation where he figured he would start by telling them how many missiles we knew they had. And he tells a funny story how he was telling it to a Russian general in the, in the Kremlin. And all of a sudden, they stopped the meeting and hauled the general out because the general himself was not cleared to know the information that, that the Soviet Union had. Right. So how would you do this with software? The one thing you can't do is tell your opponent what you know about what they know. And you certainly can't tell them about what you know that you can do. So there's no basis to have the conversation. In other words, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing, and you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do. And if I say, I suspect you're building the blah, 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 the other side will just look blank. How do you get started? At least in nuclear, you could count the number of warheads, and there's some rough approximation to reality there. So we have no language in diplomacy. We have no algorithms. We have no doctrine of how to discuss dangerous software. Now, I'll give you an example of spread. So imagine that these systems get so powerful that they're too dangerous to be in normal people's hands. So how many will there be? And I'll guess maybe there's 10 computers in the world because these are big and powerful and so forth. And there's a couple in China and a couple in Europe and a bunch in the US, maybe one in Israel, something like that. How secret do these computers have to be? They're clearly going to be different. They're not going to be running the same software. We won't know what the Chinese supercomputer can do to us, and they won't know what we will. How do we agree to some restrictions on the use of these computers if we're not willing to describe what they can do? Hmm. So so the core set of assumptions in the physical world about how you negotiate, how you uh, negotiate detente, how you negotiate containment, and fundamentally deterrence is about creating a situation where the other guy wants to do something bad to you, but the cost to them is too high. But since we can't describe the cost, we can't, we can't even have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, let's imagine we invented something in the United States, in the equivalent of Los Alamos, that was incredibly powerful. But we can't describe it. The Chinese might hear about it, and they might decide that they need to preemptorily dis- kill it before it's even turned on, because it's so dangerous to them. Yeah. So it's dynamically unstable, and it's also politically and and doctrinarily unstable. We don't have language in our diplomacy. We don't have diplomats. We don't have rails, if you will, where these conversations can be done. We have proposed, for example, another work that I've done, that the Chinese and the Russians should agree 
that nuclear weapons will only be launched under human control, which is, as you know, the U.S. doctrine. So far, they've not agreed to that. So if they're not even willing to agree to human control over the, the most dangerous things in the world, how are we going to get them to agree to anything else? Hmm. So, yeah, also what one compounding variable here is the prospect that with something like AGI, it's possible there's, that the final yard is going to reveal something like a winner-take-all scenario here. I mean, what, what is the difference between being six months ahead of the competition if you get AGI, truly superhuman, self-improving AGI, six months earlier than the competition? Uh, that's you, basically, you win the world. You right? can imagine how destabilizing that is. And, and I, for, for our listeners, we should talk a little bit about this break, because I said earlier, we're, we don't have general intelligence today, and that's clear. We're going to define general intelligence as human-like intelligence where the objectives can be set. One of the most important questions is, how would this emerge in our society? And it won't happen in the next year or two. It's the median answer, if you ask computer scientists, is 20 years. So I'll just tell you that it will be in April or so of 2042, right, based on that number. So we have 20 years to think about this, plus or minus. I'm hoping that some of the narrow AI cures aging in the meantime, because exactly. it's, uh, but, but, we've got some no, work to do. But certainly in our lifetimes and in our, in our uh, listeners' lifetimes, you know, this, it, something like this is going to happen. So the, way, the path looks something like this. The current systems are very, very clever with respect to language, and they appear to understand things. But it's well understood that if there is some basis, basic example like the concept of gravity, which is implied in the conversation, these, AGI, these current systems can't follow it. So if you say, I put the book over here, and then I dropped it here, and I put it over here, and so forth, where is it? Because the system doesn't understand how gravity works, right? as an example, it can't follow that reasoning. So the consensus is that we need to develop new systems that have memory, as they can remember facts, and they have grounded concepts in society, which you learned, we all learned as children. We understood gravity, and, and if you touch the stove, it gets hot and all that kind of stuff. So those are things that have to be added. Let's say we do that. The next thing that has to happen is the computer has to get to the point where it can do, begin to develop its own code. And there are today programming assistant products, the most famous one is from Microsoft, where a good chunk of the code that somebody's writing is finished by a computer. The way it would work is you start the program and you say, computer, please finish my programming. And the input that you give it is enough for it to finish. If you think about it, if there's enough users and there's enough people and enough examples, eventually the computer will be able to say, well, I want to do something else. I want to write my own code. Now, again, this is a belief, not a prediction, but I think it's probably going to happen. So at that point, you have a computer which is capable of setting its own objectives and also capable of changing itself. That's the point. And, and in my view, that's the trigger point for your point. At that point, it can self-improve, it can learn faster, and it can do human-level objective function. Technically, that it can actually set multiple objective functions and evaluate them and choose them, that we're going to have a problem. And it's destabilizing for the reason you described, which is imagine the other country gets it a year earlier. What do we do about that? But it also changes 
our definition of ourselves as humans. A, we are, there's no question we're the most sophisticated or at least intelligent animals under an IQ metric. What happens when there's a different kind of intelligence which does not follow our biological patterns? Now, you're a, a neuroscientist. You understand extremely well how the brain works. It comes to different conclusions using a different algorithm, one that doesn't look like our brain. Is it, and this is the metaphorical question, will these systems discover a new truth? Going back to Kant, we argue in our book that this break, this AI to AGI break, is as powerful as the development of the age of reason, which was 400 years ago. Before that, you had the age of faith. People just sort of believed uh, what the church told them or what God told them. But the concept of independent thought and independent reasoning is what allowed us to build industrial age, science, all the things we care about. This new world is that dramatic a change, right? You and I will have another thing, right, mm. which we'll have to deal with. And it has its own ideas, and it's watching us, and it's making suggestions, and so forth. And this leads to all of the, the Hollywood movies about them running amok. I'm not worried about running muck. I'm worried about it changing us and ultimately limiting our freedom to be creative, to be human, and so forth. We have no basis to discuss this today. No one's mm. even really thinking about it. Why do you say you're not worried about it running amok in the case of true AGI that becomes self-improving? Because when that happens, there are going to be about a thousand people watching the computer 24 hours a day with a running amok button. And when it runs amok, they're going to press the button and turn it off. These well, things that, are too dangerous to let them just run by themselves. Right. But, I mean, you, you, obviously, there, there's no internet button. There's no internet off switch now, right? So it's, mm -hmm. you, you can imagine if we got to the point of building these machines in a way that is you know, similar to what we've done so far with the internet, we get to a point of massive dependency before... Mm -hmm. There's any kind of intelligence explosion or you know any kind of runaway effect, right? So I'm going to assert that the next generation of really smart people who are smarter than the current generation, that always the case, this next generation, this is going to be one of their highest priorities. How do we ensure that mm -hmm. these incredibly smart things stay within some boundaries? You know, the canonical example is that which you see in the literature, is the computer is told to keep you happy, and it falsely discovers that the best way to make you happy, because you're complaining about all your friends, is to murder them all, right? In other words, its objective function was right. wrong. Right. And that's the sort of the simple ethics one that's used in class today. There will be a million such combinations of that kind of scenario, and people will come up with ways to watch it. It's yeah, not it's going to be possible, let me say very clearly. Yeah. I think we're going to conclude as a society that an unfettered computer that's arbitrarily setting its objective function based on, on what it has concluded is its objective function and what it thinks is best is probably too dangerous for anybody. Well, the w one thing that's not reassuring here is that time isn't what it seems to be, right? So that you take the case of AlphaZero is quite instructive. In the case of AlphaZero, you have an algorithm designed by DeepMind to, uh, in this case, to play chess, but it's a kind of a generic algorithm that's not bespoke just for chess, so it could be used for Go and, and for other things, protein folding ultimately, presumably with some changes. But you have this new program 
that knows nothing about chess. It's given the, the rules and it's taught to play itself. And in the, over the course of, I think it was four hours, mm-hmm. becomes not only better than any human chess grandmaster who's ever lived, it becomes better than every other bespoke chess engine that we've spent mm-hmm. decades improving, mm-hmm. right? So it, it smashes all of our chess computers. And again, this is, this is four hours going from zero. Mm-hmm. You imagine something like that in the transition to AGI, right? Where you have a system that becomes self-improving and it's improving on a time scale that is completely uncoupled from the scale of normal human events and responses to events, right? So it's like it, it can make a thousand years of progress in an hour. Suddenly, we will be, we will be in contact with an alien civilization if, if this thing gets away from us. That's, I mean, again, this sounds, this sounds like a cartoon until you realize just how few assumptions you have to take seriously in order for the cartoon to arrive in all its horror. What, you're confident that we, some smart group of Gen Z people who are, who are no longer worried about their pronouns are going to figure out how to close the door to that possibility? I am sure that people will work on this. As to whether they'll be successful, only time will tell. It's, it's an obvious issue. But let me make the more general point, which I think, I think you're mm-hmm. saying so incredibly well, that humans operate with a sort of notion of human time. And these systems are probably going to exceed our reasoning capability. My military example is that there's a doctrine in the military that you have to have a human in the loop. So let's imagine you're on a ship and the AI system says, we detect a missile coming in and you have 20 seconds to press this button or you're dead. You choose. Now, will the captain or whoever is on the boat decide that he's not going to press the button? Of course he's going to press the button. Is that human control? Or is that the fact that the 20 seconds is not enough for he or she, the captain, to call their superior, to have a conference, to sort of assess the situation? In uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a very famous example of a Russian submarine that received, because of a technical error, the wrong instructions, and the submarine captain decided not to act on them. Yeah. Very important, would have changed the course of history. Will the same thing, will the time compression in this new technical world allow for that reasoned judgment, which in this particular case was central to the outcome and avoidance of war? We don't know. So you can always answer, the technologist will always say, well, for each of these examples that Eric gives you, we can imagine a supervisory system that has judgment and watches it. Okay, but who watches the supervisor? Who watches the supervisor? How do you train the supervisor? We have no experience, no knowledge of how to build these systems, and this work has to get started now. Mm. Okay, so finally, Eric, what would you recommend we do if you were in control, if you had the budget, if you could assign the next Manhattan Project to some aspect of this problem, whether it's regulation or cooperation with China and any other relevant player, you know, what, where would you spend the money and time in the near term? Let me say that I'm quite convinced that some countries in this in our lifetimes will develop all of these issues and face all these questions. I want that country to be America. 
And I'll tell you why. If Americans do this, you and I and our friends, we're going to have one heck of a debate. All of these questions will be surfaced. Everyone will be arguing with each other. I think that's really helpful because we don't know what the right answer is. But we will ultimately be guided by democratic and American values and human values. Let's imagine instead that we don't do that, that we don't fund it and drive it and care about it. And some other country that's an autocracy, a kingdom or a, a, or a dictator or what have you gets there first, you can be quite sure that that system won't reflect American values, human values. Maybe it'll be designed to oppress women or oppress the minorities, or oppress disadvantages. There are plenty of examples of human systems that are not like America. We see them every day in, the, in wars and in conflict, and we don't know what to do with them. But imagine if they invent the future first. We have to invent this first because we have to be the ones who also set the value trade-offs. It's okay to in, invent the future, but it's not okay to survey people without their permission. If China were to do the same thing, they would build a surveillance dragnet to make sure that there's never any opposition. We're not going to do that in the West. Hmm. Well, it is uh, all too fascinating and consequential. So. Um... Thank you for your time, Eric. It's been great. Thank you, Sam. Your podcast is extraordinary. And I think the approach that you take, which is grounded in science, to ask these really hard questions is a great service to the world. Nice. Well, happy to hear it and uh, come back anytime. Okay. Thank you very much. 